You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever done any late night driving and tuned into the AM radio station looking for something to listen to? Since you're listening to a podcast right now, perhaps that's not something you've done in a while, but there was a time when the nightly airwaves of America were dominated by tales of UFOs, psychics, and other mysterious phenomena. I bet you can practically hear the theme music of this multi hour AM radio juggernaut. No. I'm not talking about George Norrie and his Coast to Coast AM show, or even Art Bell who preceded him. We're going to go way back to the 1950s when this was the sound of your radio taking you on a journey into the bazaar. My name is Long John. We call this the party line. We're around from midnight to 5.30, six mornings during the week. Monday mornings, we get started about 1. We continue through to 5.30. That means we're around for 37 and a half hours a week. Before Nori, before Bell, there was Long John Nebel. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and my co-host is Dr. Karen Stolzno. And in this episode, we're going to take a little trek into the history of American radio. In the 1990s, one of the most influential injection points for Fortiana and the Mysterious into American pop culture was Art Bell's Coast to Coast radio show. I'd long assumed that Art had invented the format of the paranormal-themed call-in show, and was astounded that he was able to fill up so many hours of airtime, but never seemed to run out of material or guests or fascinating claims from interesting people. But recently, I learned that this multi-hour late-night fringe topic approach to radio was actually pioneered by another person, a man they called Long John Nebel. His actual name was John Zimmerman, but due to his imposing six-foot-four-inches height combined with his thin build, he had earned the nickname Long John. 
When I began tinkering with the idea of putting together an episode about this influential radio show, I discovered that there were not many recordings of it publicly available. Yet I really wanted to help give some feel for what the show was like. I knew that famous skeptic and magician James Randi had been on the show, and not only that, but when Long John left the WOR station, it was Randi who took over Long John's time slot. Mr. Randy was nice enough to join us to reminisce about this time in his career, and it turns out that his relationship with Long John's show was even deeper than I knew. The Long John show was called The Party Line, and it featured a variety of show business guests like comedians and famous singers, authors, investigators we've discussed on the show like Gray Baker, John Keel, Jim Mosley, and Ivan T. Sanderson. There was a lot of time spent discussing UFOs and flying saucers. Many of the most famous early cases involving aerial phenomena were discussed in detail on the party line. See our episode number 104, which covers a lot of the fundamentals of the UFO lore in America. Fans of science fiction would appreciate some of Long John's other guests, like Frederick Pohl, Fritz Lieber, Lester Del Rey, and Ray Palmer. Entertainers like Jackie Gleason, Woody Allen, and Mel Torme made appearances, and a man who deeply influenced me as a child interested in monsters, author Daniel Cohen. UFO research groups like the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, also called NICAP, and the Civilian Saucer Intelligence, CSI, were represented frequently. The format included a roundtable discussion and at least one half-hour coffee break where pre-recorded material was played. It is probably due to my watching old black-and-white game shows of the 1950s that I imagine the setting of this show being peopled with characters dressed like the show Mad Men and with women in dresses and pearls and cigarette smoke thick in the air. I don't know if that's really what it looked like, but that's how it feels in my imagination. For about a year, I've been trying to gather up material about Long John and his show and need to say a special thank you to Jim Lippard and CSI librarian Tim Binga for their help with this episode. Let's start out with an excerpt from The Party Line. This is an exchange with science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke talking about how easy it is to be mistaken about aerial phenomena. According to your opinion, Mr. Clarke, flying saucers do not exist, but there's a great possibility that UFOs do. I would say that there's a 99% possibility that UFOs do exist and a 1%, and only a 1% possibility that flying saucers as interplanetary vehicles exist. Well, Mr. Clark, I wonder if you could tell me what a UFO is. Well, let me go back to, I'll be very glad to, let me go back to this report of these mm -hmm. gentlemen who decided... The one that Cortland is yes, talking about? decided in view of the fact, uh, these, uh, these reports and this evidence, that these things were really interplanetary vehicles. Mm -hmm. This is a conclusion I came to myself about, for about that time, as a result of these reports. And it wasn't until I'd seen about six UFOs myself that I decided that I realized they were not spaceships. The point is that um, there are far more fantastic things in the sky than anybody realizes, even the trained observer who spends a lot of time looking at the sky. And I don't see how anyone hearing all these reports and not seeing them could really fail to think they were spaceships. But they're not spaceships when you were to analyze the evidence. Now, let me give my reasons for thinking this. Um, first of all, as I say, I heard all these reports, these sightings, made by competent people, and I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't say they were all lying. And they were very convincing and very extraordinary and very inexplicable. And then as I traveled around the world, I've been around the world a couple of times in the last uh, five years, I saw quite a few strange things. And I have now seen, I've just been listing them, 
I've seen uh, six UFOs. Uh, by that I mean objects which were quite inex inexplicable when I saw them, uh, which could easily have been, inter been interpreted as spaceships, which took a lot of explaining, and often the, the explanations were so fantastic I almost hesitate to give them. But in every case, I was able to find out what they were. But I'm sure that 99% of the people who had seen them would have decided they were spaceships, but they were not. And this is happening all the time. Now, can I give some examples of things I saw to show you what I mean? Please do. Well, I was in London one day, on bright summer's day, uh, somewhere near Regent's, Regent Street, and I saw a lot of people looking up at the sky. And I looked up too. And there, a long way up, were two black spheres close together, quite motionless in the sky. There was a very strong wind blowing at the time, and these two black discs or spheres just were absolutely motionless over the center of London. I will come back to this in a minute. I'll go on to my next sighting. I was in Brisbane, Australia, on my first underwater expedition to the Great Barrier Reef. And one evening, uh, I was in a building about five or six floors up, looking out towards the sunset, and I saw, to my astonishment, a whole string of uh, brilliant silver discs, elliptical, roughly elliptical, uh, flip-flopping across the horizon quite slowly with a curious oscillating movement. And I said, good heavens, this is, this is it, you see. And I watched them go right across the sky. And this was absolutely convincing, these oscillating silver disks moving slowly. Well, that was uh, the second case. I'll give you a third case before I come back to the earlier two, if you don't mind me taking so much <laughs> of your time. Again, I was in Australia, in Sydney, and I saw an extraordinarily shaped uh, cloud. It looked like a cloud, except it had rather uh, solid edges hanging above the city of Sydney. And this again, again, there was a strong wind blowing, and this cloud stayed in the same place and slightly altered its shape, but it like, looked like an amoeba. It was hanging over Sydney, and despite the, in one place, despite the fact there was a very strong wind blowing. But I've given these three things, and I'd like to know if you... I, I, I'll tell you, can you explain them? I'll tell you what they were in a minute, but these are the things I saw. I've described, I've described them as carefully as I can. Would you care to try? The two, black the two black discs in a high wind of motionless over the middle of London. The string of silver ellipses flip-flopping across the sky along the horizon. And this weird amoeba-shaped cloud motionless in a high wind over the middle of the great city. No, these sound like uh, regular descriptions. Right, well... Fine sausage. And I mean, I'd like to hear what you... Uh, well, now, if, I, if, if anyone had told me they had seen these things, I would have been forced to accept them as inexplicable uh, flying saws, perhaps some kind of artifact. Well, the first one was an artifact. The, the two black discs close together high over London. Was a, if I hadn't gone to Regent's Park, I wouldn't have found out what it was. It was a kid flying a very large box kite that must have been about a mile up. And it was so high that its structure was... You couldn't see what it was, and of course, you, I mean, you don't associate kite flying in the middle of London, but it was a box kite at such a height that it looked like two black spots side by side over no, the middle of London. Was a box kite. I went to Regent's yeah. Park and saw the kid flying it. Oh, you saw the... the I, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. and, um, but it was a high... I've never seen a kite so high. I mean, I, I say about a mile up, that's a rough guess, but you could not tell it was a kite because it was so high. Now, this is, you may say, is a simple case, but this is the sort of thing that can start reports, Right? Mm -hmm. um, I am almost ashamed to tell you what the, what the flipping discs were 
uh, because this sounds so trite, and I had read this in books, and I had not believed it. They were seagulls catching the setting sun. Now, listen, before you laugh at me, I was born by the sea. I have lived by the sea nearly all my life. I live by the sea now. I have seen seagulls a million times, but only once in my life have I seen this phenomenon. Under certain conditions of illumination with a low sun, uh, seagulls and other birds produce an absolutely convincing impression of metallic disks moving, uh, oscillating across the sky. That was what this was. Now, the third case, this, um, this amoeba-shaped cloud, motionless over a city in a high wind, slowly changing its shape. It was a weird thing. It, it really sort of gave me creeps. I had to get a pair of binoculars to find out what it was. And there was a chemical plant of some kind with a high chimney, which I couldn't see, and something, some fumes, I don't know what they were, were coming out of this chimney. You couldn't see them when they left the chimney, as you can't see the smoke, as you often can't see the steam from the kettle. And it was obviously condensing a little way downwind of the chimney and then being dispersed. So it was roughly motionless in space, despite the wind, and it was slowly changing its shape. It was an artificial cloud, a byproduct of this chemical factory. Well, all these three cases are just examples of some of the extraordinary things that I myself have seen in a few years in the sky. And this is why I don't, take, I don't take seriously any report of anything seen in the sky. I'm sure that people see these things, they can't interpret them. So that's a little taste of the Long John Show. Let's go now to our interview with James Randi, and afterwards I'll give you an update about the Long John Show's radio archives, also, I'd like to refer you to our show notes at monstertalk.org, where you'll find links to several books that Randy mentions, along with some full episodes of Long John's show, and many other links that I think you'll be interested in. Monster Talk. James Randy is a world-famous magician, escape artist, and skeptical investigator of the paranormal. He was the head of the James Randy Educational Foundation, which for many years was the home to the Million Dollar Challenge and which created The Amazing Meeting, a truly incredible conference for the promotion of science and critical thinking. He was recently the subject of a fascinating documentary titled An Honest Liar. He's the author of many books as well. And I'm sure up until tonight, the pinnacle of his career was when he was with us on Monster Talk episode 20 to discuss the Columbus Poltergeist case. But there is another fascinating period in his amazing life, which is less well known. He was a frequent guest and the eventual replacement host on the Long John Neville radio show in New York, a show that was truly groundbreaking. We're here tonight to talk about some of his recollections of the Long John Neville show and his own stint slaving over a hot microphone as radio host. I'm happy to welcome back to Monster Talk, the amazing one, James Randi. That's the crowd one. Hi. <laughs> Say moi. I just came back from Vancouver, Canada. So I got a little trace of French in me. Ah, <laughs> that's neat. So um, you're one of many uh, uh, performers who overcame being Canadian to become successful in America. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you ever quite overcome being Canadian, but uh, I've tried hard. Uh, I should tell you about that little incident then. What drove me to become a Canadian? Sure. At American, pardon me. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be okay. Keep your seats, folks. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, uh, well, I'm glad you thought that was interesting, folks. Anyway, I uh, was working with the Alice Cooper show. Um, it was called Billion Dollar Babies. It was their uh, their first really big success as a, as a rock band. And uh, if you know who Alice Cooper is, I, I assume. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. All right. 
There may be a listener or two who doesn't know that Alice is not a lady. Uh, in fact, not a, a woman, <laughs> but not feminine, not female. Let's put it that way. Okay. And um, I was having a wonderful time working for the show uh, until we got to Niagara Falls, Canada. Now, this was a show we changed uh, every night very subtly just to accommodate the, the local folks and whatnot. You know, uh, if they had some mayor that was uh, uh, strange or uh, actually admired Alice Cooper, it's nothing we'd get him on the show if we possibly could. But a very interesting uh, uh, encounter with the, the public was the Alice Cooper show. So I... Uh, got all ready for my part, which was varied. Actually, I ended up cutting off uh, Alice Cooper's head uh, with guillotine, but it didn't work. And every night he, he he sort of went away, and then he came back the next night at the next location. So <laughs> I wasn't very good at it, apparently. But uh, Coop and I have a good sense of humor, and uh, so we, we got along all right. But um, I performed the, the guillotine uh, that night, as I did every night. But the big problem was that uh, we were given, a, of all things, a locker room at the local school as our dressing room. The local school had a huge auditorium, and that's where we held the show. And uh, <laughs> uh, I, I did the first part that I, I did in the show. It was just a walk-on, so to speak, in another costume. I made my way to the locker room to change costume, and the door was locked. And I rattled the door and everything, and a fellow, a very fierce-looking fellow came to the door, and he was uh, he had a badge saying that he was a member of the RCMP, which is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, Ta-da! which mm -hmm. is the, the federal police in Canada, you see, the RCMP. And uh, he said, uh, what the hell do you want? In fact, tonight, well, this is my dressing room for one thing, and I've got to get ready for the for the next part of the show. And then I saw what they were doing. They were tearing the place up. They were literally ransacking the place. It turned out that they were quite pissed off they hadn't found any narcotics because, you know, how rock and roll magicians, apart from musicians, I'm sorry, I can't resist. Uh, <laughs> musicians are, they're supposed to be... Uh, on dope all the time, and they had torn the place apart, literally tearing the doors off some lockers that had padlocks on them. And um, they messed up the, the props and everything, and uh, I headed out of there and got backstage and told the manager, I said, we're going to have a hell of a time now, I can't get to the props. And uh, the, 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 the stretched out version you've just heard, but <laughs> it turned out that um, we did the show. Somehow we did the show because we were very versatile. We we had backups for all kinds of things. But I was, um, what is the, the technical expression, uh, pissed off. Yeah. <laughs> Fair uh, enough. The very next day, early the next day, we were leaving that afternoon for the next location, uh, which was uh, in back in the United States again. But I went to the local paper, the Niagara Falls something or other, and I told the editor and a the reporter there who were quite interested and made lots of notes and uh, guaranteed me that they were going to look into the thing. And I left and uh, went on with the show. 
But a week after that, I thought to myself, I wonder if they showed up in the paper. So I called Niagara Falls. It turned out that the RCMP had sent a representative around. You might know what that means. And he had advised the Niagara Falls newspaper that it would not be conducive to good relationships between the RCMP and that newspaper if you were to publish that story. The story never got published. And uh, when I, I found that out, I was... Uh, more than uh, pissed off, but uh, it determined to me that if I couldn't depend on the federal police of my country, and the United States have been very, very good to me, to say the least. I had a radio program at that time that covered the whole United States of America and parts of Canada, so I uh, took out uh, American citizenship, and I've been an American ever since, and that's what made me into an American citizen. Wow. Wow. Thanks well, for sharing that. Yeah, we're glad you can tell us on the show here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but forget I just, what I just said, though, because I, I wouldn't want that to get out to anyone else. Well, you know, as long as we're not recording mm. it, I don't think there's any yeah. issues. With yeah, it's that. fine. <laughs> edit, edit. <laughs> so, moving right along. So, so, speaking of radio, nice segue. We, uh, <laughs> we, we are actually wanting to talk about your time uh, in radio in America. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so my understanding is, obviously, you know this better than I do, but that you began, you may have actually done more than this, but that you, you got involved with the Long John Nebel show as a guest initially. Yeah, I was the first guest he ever had. Really? Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Uh, the very first guest, and we did it out of Carteret, New Jersey, uh, because <laughs> WOR, AM and FM, uh, that's the, the call letters of the station, or were at that time, it's WORR now. I, I don't know why, maybe because I left, I'm not sure. But um, we used to do it at a Carteret, New Jersey, and uh, John just called me one day. Now, I had known him because I'd recorded a few uh, small shows with him at his apartment. He used to prepare uh, drop-in announcements uh, for various stations around uh, the USA, and he would call me in for, for amusement and a few other things and uh, to say some funny things. And uh, so I knew him that way. He called me one day and he said, uh, what are you doing tonight? And I said, not much. I'm going to go to sleep like most people do. And he said, no, 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 no. I'd like you to come out to Carteret, New Jersey. They've just given me this radio show. And I said, oh, okay, I guess so. I wasn't uh, too frightened of it or too impressed by it, you see. But Carteret, New Jersey turned out to be a pig farm. I mean, literally pig farm. And it was odiferous, to say the least. And it had another interesting thing going for it. The studio, now there's a huge antenna. Imagine the Eiffel Tower rising right outside of a little shack in the country, uh, which was a pig farm. Uh, this was 100,000 watts. Now, they don't issue licenses for stations with that kind of power now because they don't need to. But this really reached, as I said, right across the United States and down into Mexico and parts of Canada. Uh, and, and this was after midnight, too. And if you know anything about the heavy side layer, I'm not going to get into that, but it's an atmospheric anomaly which comes about every now and then, which means that, uh, that radio programs like that go much, much further away than you might dream they would because they reflect off what's called the heavy side layer. Uh, that's named after a guy named Heaviside, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't there when they named it. But um, 
Yeah, I, I went out and I did the show this night, and it was a lighthearted thing. We had a wonderful time. But the interesting thing that, that fascinated me was that they were all fluorescent lights in the place. Now, that's, that's not too unusual. And in those days, fluorescent lights weren't that common, perhaps, as they are today. But every light was fluorescent. Not only that, they weren't plugged in. No, really? So yeah. just from the from the radio it, signal? That's right, from the radio wave itself that was being put out there. I, I think I'm I'm probably, I, I might be infertile right now. I'm not too sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think I better find out about that. You know, at my age, I've got to hurry along if I want to have a family. Exactly. It's <laughs> <laughs> a bit late to start thinking about that, you know. But no, it, it, it's actually true. They, they had a cupboard there. If you opened the thing, day and night, it blazed at you like you wouldn't believe. The tubes eventually burned out uh, because they were just worn out. But they lit all day long and all night long. And uh, that, that, that gets your attention, you know. But all the lights are lit and they were equipped with Velcro or the equivalent of Velcro in those days. So they just stuck them on the wall any place at all. And they couldn't turn the lights off. <laughs> that is neat. Wow. That, that, I mean, I, I think I'm going to get one of those, you know, one of those radio transmitter things. But, no, it, it was just wonderful. And I was uh, rather taken by that, I thought. But I wasn't paying the electric bill, so I didn't care. <laughs> that, that's what I did the first part. And then I had to do several different characters for John because he couldn't get people to go all the way out to the pig farms at night to be a guest on a show that hadn't proven itself. Well, that, that soon remedied itself, and he couldn't keep them away from his door when they finally moved him back uh, into New York uh, from 1440 Broadway, the RKO uh, headquarters at that time, right above Times Square, uh, 28 stories up. Uh, he used that studio and used it for the rest of his career there. But uh, the, the first show was, uh, the first shows were done out of Carteret, New Jersey. And uh, I had to do several characters. I did the great Kieselgar. Uh, Kieselgar, I, I use this German name. Uh, it turned out that it was a fertilizer. I, I picked the name out of a dictionary someplace or other. And <laughs> when, I hit, when I hit John with that, uh, he, he introduced me first of all. He did a bit of a German accent. And uh, he said, uh, we have uh, Professor, what is your name, Professor? And I said, uh, Professor Kieselgar, and that, that broke him up. He fell off the table, I think. <laughs> uh, uh, I did all kinds of characters. I was the great M as a mentalist and whatnot. I did all kinds of characters until he found out, as I said, that he could attract people and you couldn't keep them away. Uh, it only lasted in Carteret, New Jersey, a matter of a few weeks before the station found out. And they said, wow, we got something here that's actually paying the bills. They were all excited over it, and uh, so they moved him into 1440 Broadway. And I inherited the show <laughs> under a very uh, strange circumstance. Um, <laughs> uh, one day I, uh, uh, well, for one thing, uh, the Archbishop of New York was, um, what was his name? Uh, oh, goodness, I don't care. But he was <laughs> Archbishop of New York anyway. Uh, maybe he cared, but... Uh, I, I didn't, and I still don't. Um, I inherited the show when John Neville um, announced that he was moving to WNBC, 
That's the NBC radio uh, station in uh, New York City. And um, they didn't listen to him. The, the management thought, oh, no, John's never going to move. <laughs> he wouldn't do a thing like that. And then when he suddenly started to empty out his office, they got panicky. And they called me because I was the only other one they knew that was on the show. They didn't, didn't look at the show, listen to the show at all. Now, they um, they didn't have to do that, you see. John just worked for them. And uh, they asked me if I'd come in and do the show. Well, I did one night. I found myself sitting in front of John's old microphone uh, with no notice at all. I mean, just later that afternoon, I had to drive into New York City in order to get there on time for midnight. And uh, I did the show. And about, oh, about six months into the show, um, I had my panel on. <laughs> Uh, sitting around the table. Now, this is midnight to five in the morning, remember. And um, I, I said to the panel, I said, you know, we're above Times Square right now. I noticed they've got some sort of a celebration going on. They're carrying signs around there. It just occurred to me that if Jesus Christ were to appear in Times Square at this very moment with that crowd down there, uh, carrying a sign saying, I'm Jesus Christ and I've come back, they'd arrest him as a religious nut. And I and I, I got a bit of a laugh from the folks around the table. I, I went on with the program. We finished it. I went home at 5 o'clock in the morning. And at about 7 o'clock in the morning, I got a call from Jim McAleer, who was the program director. He said, get back here into the city right now. Uh, no excuses. And click down with the phone. I thought, what have I done? I, I didn't write it to the, to the comment that had been made on the show. But when I got back in, they said, you called Jesus Christ a religious nut on the radio last night. <laughs> and that was heard by millions of people across the United States, Canada, and Mexico. And I said, no, I didn't. And McLear looked at me and said, I know you didn't, but the archbishop says that you did. He was misinformed, but we've got to assume that you did say that, and you'll go on the air tonight, and you'll make an apology. And I said, I won't. I didn't say it. And he said, you will make an apology. That's it. And I said, no, I won't. And I lost my job. Now, I, I, could, have, I could have had a, a big fuss and fume, but I thought, if they're going to dismiss me over a stupid little thing like this, uh, I can't be bothered with these people. Uh, I think I'm going to go back to being a magician. And that's exactly what I did. Well, the irony oh. is Jesus would have totally forgiven you. But, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that reminds me of uh, John Lennon saying that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus Christ and that whole fiasco. Exactly. So I, I beat John Lennon to it. Can you imagine? Yeah, he did. <laughs> imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, with the, the Long John Nebel show, weren't there? Um, wasn't there a big focus on paranormal topics? Oh yeah, yeah. He he rather specialized on that, and uh, he he did anything to produce strife. He wanted to be arguing with people. There were some well-known people. That I have no idea what happened to Paris Flamand, for example, but that's the kind of a fancy name that a lot of people had that were on that program. Oh, it, it was a fascinating program. There's no question of it. I'm talking about the, the Neville show now. And uh, I replaced it only for a year. And uh, then I had the disaster of having Jesus Christ come out against me. <laughs> So when when he was so we we uh, briefly talked about some of the topics that were covered on his show so yeah. things things like the shaver mysteries and uh, Richard Sharp Shaver that was his name can you imagine 
No. <laughs> Honestly, uh, I think I first heard about this about a year ago. And I, I felt like, you know, I was reasonably well informed about various uh, crack pottery, uh, if that's a phrase. Uh, no, it is. <laughs> I, I felt like I had a good handle on Fordian subject matter. And I had totally missed the Shaver Mysteries. And, oh, my goodness. And so I, I've just been digging into that, uh, so to speak. Uh, and I've been fascinated by not only the subject itself, but how big of a social impact it seemed to have had for a little while. As, you know, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, we, we caused quite a fuss, you know. I think anything that uh, we could raise on the program, I'm talking about the Long John Nebel Show and my show, but uh, on the Nebel Show, uh, even when he went to WNBC, uh, he carried on for a, a few years, I believe. I, I don't recall that whole event. Uh, very well, his association with WNBC. Uh, but uh, Candy Jones uh, shared the program with him. She was an uh, ex-model, a very glamorous ex-model, and she was his wife. And uh, uh, Candy Jones and Long John Neville uh, did that program with WNBC for, I, I believe, a few years. Yeah, so what, um, can you talk about the format just a little bit? I mean, because um, there aren't, a lot of recordings left of it. And uh, I just, I'm curious, like even from what might seem mundane, but like literally like how did the commercials get fed in? You know, what, what was it like? Uh, John used to handle the commercials himself. He did that with WOR as well as I did when I inherited the program. Um, And uh, we had, uh, Oh, we had uh, jewelers and we had people who made, uh, all kinds of strange devices and machines and did plumbing and uh, the, the widest variety of sponsors you could possibly imagine. But when he went with WNBC, he had some major sponsors, of course. And uh, they sort of loved him because he did something quite illegal. Uh, for a 60-second commercial, he'd take uh, at least three minutes uh, because he, he would just chat with the, with the uh, customers out there that were going to possibly buy the product. And uh, that's not allowed nowadays. You can't get away with that. But WBC was very happy with that. And uh, you mentioned uh, John's wife, uh, Candy. And uh, I heard a story some time ago that she claimed to be a victim of CIA mind control. Uh, Do you know anything about that at all? Oh, I certainly do. And uh, this, well, John was a hypochondriac. Um, And you have no idea how strong it was. We used to, <laughs> when we, at WOR, um, when I was a guest on the on his show, uh, we used to, I, I, well, I, I, Walter McDonough was one of the engineers. He's well deceased now, so he won't mind. Um, he and I used to work up schemes whereby we'd get John worried about some disease or other, you see. And what we do is sort of time it so that when John walked into the station and I'd, I'd be sitting there in the control room uh, with the rest of the guys, and I'd say something like, it, it's, a, it's a terrible disease, you know, and the skin just, it peels off the back of your throat. Can you imagine? And of course, they, they'd start, they, would, they would titter at this, you see, but I'd, I'd try to keep them down so they wouldn't, John wouldn't tumble to it, you see, and John would immediately let up and say, Disease? And yes, it's, uh, it, it's uh, How cruel. <laughs> could watch out for it, John. I, I just heard about it uh, from a doctor friend. It, uh, the, the, back, uh, the skin at the back of your throat starts to peel off, 
and it, it sticks to your tongue. It's very nasty when you're swallowing. It, it's hard to, to control. Uh, I, I'm sure it, it must be a dreadful thing. And they tell me there's no cure for it. Now, this is the kind of thing I would do, we would do. Uh, well, I, I sort of instigated it, I'm sure. Uh, I, I plead guilty in that respect. And um, John w- would be going around, <coughs> and this kind of thing, thinking that maybe he had it, you see. Yes. I, <laughs> I, I would suspect probably 5% of our audience is desperately looking for a glass of water right now. I'd like mm-hmm. to- <laughs> yeah. And some, some Listerine or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. happened on our, we did an episode on parasites, and uh, it, it appears that if you just discuss parasites getting into your skin and making you itchy, and the way yeah. that they sort of crawl under your skin, it uh, worked and, on me. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have to have at least two of them, you know. <laughs> oh, exactly. Parasites, get it? <laughs> so bad the humor was on my show, yeah. Hey, that, that's quality material for this show, I promise you. <laughs> no, no, John was uh, subject to that sort of thing. And uh, we, we could we could put him on so many different ways if we wanted to talk about sickness or disease or fever or anything. He had a thermometer in his desk right at the in the studio, in, in, in Studio 2A. He had an actual thermometer there in there, and every now and then he would sit there talking to people uh, with the thermometer sticking out of the corner of his mouth because he wanted to make sure his body temperature was okay. Wow. <laughs> and it, it, That's they, serious. When they called him Long John because of his height and thinness, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he was a, a fairly tall, very, very slender person. Oh, yeah. Oh, by the way, I must say there's a book I would call, I think it's just called Long John Neville. Um, I came upon it in my local library when I was looking for something else altogether. Uh, you remember libraries? This is where we used to go for information. It's actually a building with a lot of books in it. <laughs> mm, haven't heard of it. <laughs> you may not know about that, of course. No. I understand. You, uh, you, uh, young folks. Is it like a Kindle? What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sort of. Yeah, it's sort of like that, except it's paper. Well, it's a long story. But anyway, I, I found this book. I think it was just called, as I say, Long John Neville. And... Uh, I was fascinated. I just opened it up. And, of course, the first thing I did was turn to the back and look for my name to be mentioned. That book is written entirely about the career of Long John Neville from the moment uh, he started life, I guess. My name doesn't appear anywhere in the book. That's astonishing because I inherited the program, as I know. And I first guessed and a few things like that. But my name doesn't appear anywhere in the book. And I'm sure the, the guy that wrote the book, I I can't recall, um, he must have hated me, I guess. And he just made sure that I didn't show up anyplace in the book. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. 
So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Hmm. I hope it, it wasn't written by Uri Geller. So we were talking about uh, CIA mind control. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh no, th- this was a thing that uh, that that I. Uh, this is just a surmise, and I'm not I'm not being rude. I'm not being too fanciful about this. As a matter of fact, um, I strongly suspect, and always have, that John was trying to create something uh, for Candy in such a way that uh, after he went, and he did get terminally ill eventually, um, and when he when he knew that that was it, I'm sure that's about the time that he invented the CIA uh, thing, and they wrote a book. Uh, do you know the title of the book? Um, uh, I've forgotten the guy who wrote it even. I, I don't. We no, can look but we that can, up. We can find it and put it in the show notes. Yeah. Oh, sure, yeah. Well, anyway, it, it, uh, it was a book that was written uh, by a ghostwriter. Um, ghostwriter, get it? Yeah. Um, and uh, it was about Candy Jones' adventures and whatnot. Uh, and I, I suspect that John created that just to sort of save Candy and give her an income and a few things like that. John was a fine fella. I, I liked him a lot. He was... Uh, unpredictable. He could be mean if he wanted to, and he was mean to me a few times over the years. But uh, I recovered from it. Uh, as you can see, I'm completely recovered. <laughs> <laughs> how how was he mean? He he could be mean. He uh, he would take uh, uh, he would take umbrage at certain things, and and certain people would be canceled off the program and told they would never be back. To, to the program uh, when he was feeling irritable, uh, I never, I never experienced that. Uh, he he needed me for the first two weeks. I can tell you that he needed me to do all the characters like Doctor Fuselgar and the Great M. But uh, no, I never had any of his uh, his anger foisted on me. Well, so the in addition to the UFOs and the uh, sort of paranormal topics. Uh, he also had on the, some very prominent science people, and I'm sure he must have had on celebrities as well. Were there any notable guests that you got to panel with that you enjoyed the experience or would like to yes. talk about? This was the first time that this gentleman ever appeared on the public media. Do you know the name Wolfgang Puck? Yes. Yeah. The chef. <laughs> That's right. The chef, very famous chef, and very wealthy and well-to-do chef, I'm sure. If he's still with us, I'm not sure that Wolfgang Puck still exists. But um, he that was the first time he ever appeared on anything. He was a nervous wreck. He sat in front of the microphone, and to be, to be, to be, to be. He had a very hard, he presented himself very well, but he did the whole damn show, one whole night of the show. 
uh, just giving out recipes and a few things like that. And he got back in the program several times. And then he took off and became very famous. And he didn't need radio anymore, I guess. But Wolfgang Puck, I remember that very well. And there, there were there were many other people who made first appearances uh, on those shows. Most of them authors. Um, Lester Del Rey. That was the well. You don't know the name Lester Del Rey, I don't suppose. And oh, I during, do. I do. Del Rey, the science fiction. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I was a very close friend of, of Lester's and his wife uh, Judy Lynn. They lived uh, with uh, just sort of old eight or ten blocks away from me uh, in New Jersey, as a matter of fact, when I made my home out there in Romson, New Jersey. Ta-da! <laughs> that, that doesn't exist. My home doesn't exist anymore, by the way. They wiped out the entire block and street, and they turned it into a housing project. I mean, duh! You know, what, what do they do with your house? Oh, and I, I, that, that's, a, that, that's a secret I'll share with you and with your audience. Um, before I left my house, it 27 Rumsey Road in Rumson, New Jersey. Uh, go and look for it. It's not there anymore. <laughs> but, um, I actually had a, a, a steel box. Uh, I'm holding my hands up in front of myself now. About 14 inches by 6 inches deep by 12 inches the other way. Uh, a steel box, uh, steel lid, of course, on it. And I uh, had a big, big combination padlock. And I left a time capsule behind in the in the in the living room. It was a cathedral style uh, house uh, with, with a huge, huge two story tall uh, cathedral ceiling in the main room, and uh, in in a closed cupboard at the front of the building, uh, I pulled up some floorboards and I lowered this steel box in there as sort of a time capsule before I moved out of the house and moved away to Florida, and. Uh, so some someplace under Rumson, New Jersey, uh, is a steel box that I think will never be uncovered or recovered now, unless somebody wants to go up there with a big shovel and start digging it up. Uh, and it had uh, the, the local newspapers and uh, uh, various other magazines and such of the day, uh, a time capsule, sort of fun. And I don't think anyone's going to give us a call and say, hey, I just found it. Because it's really buried rather deeply now, I'm sure. No, no, buried treasure. I was about to say, considering your background with the uh, mind tricks, I would not be shocked if when they open it, it's got like the 20 winning lottery tickets for 20 years in a row or something. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the lottery ticket is number four. Yeah. Oh, there are going to be people who go looking for this, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, in your um, in your in the arc of your career, as you you know transition from pure entertainment to uh, becoming this uh, icon of skeptical thinking, um, mm. how did uh, interacting with these kind of UFO paranormal guests work out? With it? I mean, like, what did it was that that was that all entertainment, or did you grill them on their their facts, or how did that work? Oh yeah, no, I was uh, I was quite their adversary. And, uh, well, there was Andrew Sinatra, the psychic barber, and a few people like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm picking this up, but these are actual guests that we had on the show. Uh, they're all kind of, and, and psychics. Uh, sometimes, sometimes we would get somebody in there who wanted to make uh, psychic pretensions. And uh, 
he didn't usually last most of the program. You know, he he would uh, spend maybe 40 minutes in there until we wiped him out pretty well. We went on with discussing other things. Uh, a lot of people walked out of our studio. I saw the back of a lot of people going out the studio door, I can tell you. But I had no patience with them whatsoever. I, I said, prove your case, you know. And uh, they don't really want to prove their case. They want to appear to prove their case. Uh, it, it's like, well, it, I did, uh, uh, altogether, I did uh, almost 30 uh, Johnny Carson shows during his career and mine. And um, I, I, rem I remember one guy, uh, John, and I, uh, Johnny Carson had, had a rule. The rule was he didn't want to meet any guest who was coming on the show that night before the show. He wanted to meet them on air while he was sitting at the desk and wrapping his pencil on the desk and whatnot and doing his inimitable introductions and the curtain would be pulled back and the guest would walk in. And even if he it was somebody that he knew uh, very well and had on the program uh, many times, uh, he wanted to meet them as he stood up at the desk and sh shook their hands for the very first time on the show. He didn't want to meet them before the show. So uh, <laughs> he... He made an exception with me for some reason. I, I think he sort of he, he took a liking to me. He wanted to do what he could for me. And uh, about, oh, say, three or four minutes before they started to tape the show, they started taping it in the afternoon at about four o'clock in the afternoon so they could do any editing that they had to do, of course. And um, so the audience would be assembled out there, and I would hear on the door, and I thought, uh oh, that must be John. And I'd go to the door and throw it open, and I'd see people staring over his shoulder at me and looking at me and saying, I wonder if he knows where the body's hidden. You know, this kind of thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I must have something on him, music. And uh, John would uh, would enter the room, and I'd close the door, and, and uh, we'd shake hands, and he'd say, uh, what can I mention tonight? What, what do you need me to uh, to mention for it. Now, he's been very polite and very considerate, you see. He, as I said, he didn't do this with other people that I know of, ever. And uh, that's why the, the audience, the, the, the staff outside, I should say, was, was just astonished to see him knocking on my door and walking into my, my dressing room. And I, I would usually give him some sort of thing, you know, mention this side of the other. And he'd say, sure, got that. And he'd walk out and go back to the set and we would do the show. And uh, one, one night, uh, i got to tell you this one. Uh, one night, uh, Tony Randall and, um, uh, oh, uh, um, the singer, um, oh, I can't think of her name. Uh, can you remember it, what they come, saying? They come to me. Anyway, yeah, no uh, problem. Yeah, okay. Uh, a if singer, you think of it, I can edit it in and it'll seem like you never had a gap. <laughs> well, no, I, I would rather have a gap, thank you. Okay, well, you're good. <laughs> okay. uh, um, um, I almost got the name. But anyway, a singer, a very attractive blonde uh, singer, and uh, Tony Randall were on the show. And uh, when I walked out of my dressing room and wandered backstage, I came upon Tony, and we knew one another from various other uh, programs. And uh, he was walking up and down uh, and pacing back and forth and biting his lip. And I... I uh, Jane, oh God! Uh, and I'll, I'll try to try to come on later on. Uh, she was walking back and forth and uh, nervously fidgeting. And uh, Tony said to me, "He said you're not the least bit worried." And I said, "No, Tony. Why should I be worried?" And now, at just at this moment, 
I'm going to be the first one on the show this night, you see. And just at this moment, the announcement is being made outside, and, and Johnny is building up my, my reputation, and probably falsely, but uh, building it up for me. So he's just about to introduce me, and I'm going to walk through the curtain. And uh, so I said, no, I'm never, never nervous, Johnny. Why are you so nervous? He said, well, this is the Carson show. He said, you walk through that curtain and you're going to be taped from that moment on. It, we're going to be seen by millions of people later on. And you're not the least bit nervous. And he said, why? And as I walked through the curtain, I turned to him and I said, because, Tony, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> but that was as mean as I get. You see, yeah. walked through the curtain and I heard Tony Byam saying, oh, yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, we we made peace afterwards. I can I can tell you that. But no, John Carson, Johnny Carson was just uh, one of the big things in my life. He he pretty well put me on the map uh, as a performer. And uh, he, he we often used to talk backstage after the show uh, uh, with with a couple of the other staff, of course. Uh, Ed McMahon, for example, he he was a, a gem too. Very very nice, friendly fellow. And, um, <laughs> and we used to talk about uh, radio in general because we both had uh, experience in that field. And uh, those conversations, oh, my goodness, do I ever wish that some of those had been recorded. It was not easy in, in those days to record anything without being pretty obvious about it. And I wouldn't have snuck a recording in, uh, or a recorder in, pardon me, of course. But... Um, Oh, I wish I had some of those conversations uh, on tape. It'd be just wonderful. Oh, I, I must tell you, uh, Ed McMahon's story, too. One day, uh, well after, uh, uh, let me see, what was it? I was off the air, at, at, off radio, of course, at that time. And uh, I, was, I had been doing the Carson Show occasionally. Um, it was on 6th Avenue, I remember. I was with a friend. And uh, 6th Avenue had a traffic jam. And 6th Avenue having a traffic jam, that's serious, because the whole city's just stopped dead. And um, I was walking down 6th Avenue, and I heard I heard a familiar voice. Ed McMahon it was in a limo, and he peeled back the door at the top of the limo and stood up and <laughs> right in front of everybody and yelled out, Amazing! <laughs> <laughs> And people looked around and they saw Ed McMahon and they wondered where I was. And I yelled back. I said, ordinary. <laughs> and and he, he thought that was pretty funny. He sank back into the limousine. And I, I'm sure we had a discussion about it later on. But no, Ed McMahon was a, was a pearl. He was a fine gentleman, very friendly and very helpful in many ways. I had a good time with Ed McMahon and, and with so many other people on the show, of course. So, so Johnny was uh, a magician as well, right? Oh yes, he was an amateur magician, but uh, he he had the best teachers in the world. You know, uh, all the program people that he had on his program, uh, they would do anything to teach John a, a magic trick. He was very good at sleight of hand, very very good at it, and he can handle a deck of cards very well. He never did anything on the show himself as as a magic trick, never. Uh, he did all kinds of stunts, of course, but. Um, he thought that was for the professionals. He didn't want to uh, upstage them, you know, to, to one best them, anything like that. Uh, but he loved magicians and, and magic. And uh, 
that's one reason I guess I got so many appearances on the show. Did you teach him any tricks? Oh yeah, yeah. There were there were a couple, a couple of mentalism things that I that I taught him, and he was quite fascinated by that. Uh, mentalism is the art of uh, making people believe that you have ESP and a few other things working for you, and actually you're faking it. And there are ways of doing that, but we won't get into that, will we? No, <laughs> no. Not unless okay. you want to buy my program. Uh, <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> no, I actually did. I went to a magic shop in Vegas recently and picked up uh, a book on mentalism because, uh, you know, the inexpensive one, the tricks from, you know, the 1920s. So I'm sure these have all been outdated. But uh, just looking at uh, the ones I have read, the amount of work that goes into making something look simple is crazy. Yeah. It's okay. crazy. Yeah, it is. Yeah, you've got to have the, the – first of all, you've got to have the basic spirit of what, uh, well, deception and, and misdirection and such are really all about. Uh, you, you've got to have some sort of basic knowledge of the deceptive, uh, the art of deception. And um, most of the magic books don't get that across. They, they give you the mechanics of uh, how the trick will work. But then you've got to put your personality in on top of that. And there, there's a wonderful book uh, by a man named Corinda, C-O-R-I-N-D-A, called, um, oh, goodness. Uh, I, I'm, I'm doing okay with my memory this evening. Um, it's a, uh, something like Mental Magic or something. It's, it's Corinda's book of Mental Magic. I think that's what it's called. And uh, I thoroughly and always have suggested to anybody who wants to get into mentalism, the, everything that you want to know uh, in abbreviated form and uh, in, in limited descriptions and such is in that book. Uh, th 33 Steps to Mentalism, I think that's the, the name of the book. And um, uh, But magic books uh, that are good in that they're written for people who don't have any training in, in the art of ledger domain... Um, are rather rare, frankly. Uh, many of them were written by professional magicians who, in many cases, didn't know quite how to uh, express themselves uh, in explaining how the tricks are done. It's a pity, but I, I have a, a, a library uh, that's within sight of my desk here that has all kinds of very good stuff in it. A couple of books by me, too. But um, but uh, I, I've, I've written a couple of books on magic that... Uh, I, I won't mention because I don't really want it out, you see. Don't tell me. Edit, edit, yes. I was going to say, when you, when you were living in New York at the time um, of the radio show, yeah. uh, I've, I've read about uh, m like there being magic social clubs. I think it was uh, in the Martin Gardner autobiography that I was reading. Oh, yes, yes I'm sure. Uh, uh, oh yeah. What's that like? What was I mean? Was it a big community? Were there a lot of magicians who were also social together, or was it kind of yeah. competitive, or both? Or? Yeah, in New York there was the Hat and Rabbit Club, and uh, that figures, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> the Society of American Magicians, or the International Brotherhood of Magicians, as well. Now, these are international organizations that are known all over the world. I'm, I'm proud to say that I'm a member of the Inner Magic Circle of London, England. And, uh, and not only that, I'm a, uh, <clears throat> a member of the Inner Magic Circle with Gold Star yet. And there are only a few of those. 
Uh, I've been that distinction. It sounds impressive. I don't really know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, well, I wear my bling. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I just did in uh, Vancouver, as a matter of fact. I was just in Vancouver uh, to meet with some uh, a skeptical group there, uh, a couple of hundred people, and we had a, had a, a hell of a good time. Very good time. Oh, oh, i got to tell you that. Okay. I, I think you'll like this. <laughs> I think you'll like this. She's I hope. Otherwise, they'll switch me off. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I just appeared, as I said, in Vancouver, and I, I read their program. The program has a picture of me on the, the front of it, in full color, yet, ladies and gentlemen. And it listed a uh, presentation of, uh, of a particular award uh, to me as a, as a skeptic um, and uh, a speaker of truth uh, on occasion. And... Um, they said that it would be presented by Penn and Teller. And I thought, oh, great, okay. And I figured, I, I made the assumption wrongly that Penn and Teller were going to come via video, you know, because they've often appeared on various programs uh, with me via little video inserts. Uh, but it turned out they were actually in Vancouver, Canada. Duh. Uh, how could they possibly? Well, they were doing a show there uh, and, and a special set of appearances. And uh, when the the MC, uh, unknown to me, now I didn't know they were actually going to appear, when Penn and Teller walked in the door, uh, I I was most astonished of anybody in the room. (laughs) And uh, as, uh, well, as Teller once said to me, (laughs) that's very good. We got it. That was only about three seconds or so. Most people take seven, eight seconds catch on to that <laughs> you're very good congratulations folks hey, you did very well you both laughed at the same time <laughs> the joke the joke ladies and gentlemen is the color doesn't speak you see uh he's he's not mute no he can speak but he doesn't in his character as teller and uh, as a magician and uh pen does all the talking but pen by the way and i i gotta i gotta say this in great admiration of Penn Jillette. Penn has lost a huge amount of weight. He must have lost at least 100 pounds or so. He has, yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. And I you see you know, the, the show Fool Us, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I saw him on that program the first time. I was so shocked. I called him immediately. I said, Penn, Penn, well, I, I saw you, you look so, so, so slender and such and he said, "Oh no, no, I did it. I did it. I did. It. I did it under doctor's supervision because I hadn't seen him in a while, in person." And uh, he said, "I did it. I, he lost a pound a day. Uh, now that's great weight loss. You, you can't yeah. do that without it without a uh, without a hammer and chisel you know, to lose a pound <laughs> a day. But he lost a pound a day. He did it under medical supervision, and he looks great. And one of the reasons uh, was that he was." Uh, you know, he was feeling the weight. He had to haul all that weight around, and he had a huge appetite. I'm sure that is less than it used to be. But uh, I'm I'm very proud. Well, I've always been proud to know Penn and Teller, of course. As Teller said to me, no, I did that already. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, no, I have always been very close to those guys. In fact, I introduced them one to the other many, many years ago. So I'm responsible for Penn and Teller existing. He he is um, Pence, Pence, Speaking of Penn, he he on his um, he does a podcast called uh, 
Penn Sunday School. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, I've been listening to that for some time, and uh, he's he's talked about his weight loss. And I believe he actually has a book out now. Uh, yeah. Or oh, yeah. it should be about, you know, and it's uh, his greatest trick of making uh, 100 pounds disappear, which is, I think, very yeah. clever. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it sounds like a very healthy diet. I mean, uh, I don't, you know, uh, we're not in the diet business here on this show, but it, it does sound like an incredibly healthy diet. And, uh and it seems very reasonable. So I, I hope uh, he's able to keep it off. He sounds like it's really helped his... Uh, oh, no, oh, he will. Oh, yeah, there's no yeah. question. Uh, these these two guys, they make up their mind to do something. They do it. That's all there is to it. Uh, they're very disciplined. Um, they're a hell of a team, you know. And I love them dearly. They're, they're very, very good friends of mine. And I'm so proud to know Penn because he did this this wonderful thing and I when I saw him walk into that room in Vancouver walk from the back of the room to the front to greet me I I, I was just entranced because I'd seen him on TV with the the weight loss but he walked so firmly and uh, much freer than he ever did before and uh, it's a great accomplishment and uh, yeah I'm, I'm very proud to know him it's, right. it's, it's very inspiring. Oh, it is. Yeah. Yeah. It is indeed. So if you don't mind, since we've got you here, um, do we, <laughs> well, the, I, I'm thinking about, because here you are and I've, dangerous. Yeah. I've got, well, I've got all these questions I've always had about, you know, different parts of your career. Yeah. And one of the ones I'm, um, I'm doing a lot of research on my own about um, technology and technological advances. And, and kind of part of that is to, uh, refute some of Eric Von Daniken's uh, ancient astronaut stuff um, in a, in a, I mean, that's thoroughly debunked, but it, it's not, you know, I'm trying to teach people more about how technology actually is developed. Right. And, um, but reading about your career, I realized that uh, I think at one point you actually traveled to South America to see some of these amazing uh, oh. sites. Can you talk a little bit about what happened there? What was that all about? This archeology? span Sure. I, uh, well, yes, I, uh, I've always been a Peruophile, so to speak. Um, and, uh, I had, I was, I was just saying to somebody this morning, uh, someone mentioned they'd, they'd seen some photographs of Machu Picchu, which is up in the mountains. Um, uh, and that was one of the, the redoubt of the, the Inca and his cohorts, um, when the, the empire sort of retreated, uh, when the Spanish came. Uh, Machu Picchu was, was, when I was there in many, oh, good 35, 40 years ago, uh, it was such a beautiful sight in the mountains. You had to climb. Oh, it, it took a whole day. It really took a whole day. There, they used to have a, a little hotel at the base of, of the mountain, and you could, you could stay there overnight, and then you had to set out at dawn to walk up the mountain with the zigzag roads going back and forth, uh, left and right, left and right, left and right. That's the only, because you couldn't climb straight up the side of that mountain. It was so steep, and it was a huge mountain. And um, I, I was with a couple of other guys uh, who accompanied me to South America on this particular trip. I've been to South America many times on exploring trips and everything and enjoyed every bit of it. But uh, the time that I got to, to go to Machu Picchu, we went up by train until we came to the village at the bottom of the mountain. And we got off there, and then we had to check into the hotel and wait overnight so that we could 
do this arduous thing. But we got to the top of that mountain. Oh, what a sight. But I won't go back. If I was given the opportunity right now to be sent in there by satellite, no, I wouldn't go back because they've now got neon signs up and they've got a, a hotel on the mountain itself rather than mm. down at the foot. And they've got commercial uh, things all over the place with restaurants. And, uh, they, they just screwed it up. Screwed up. There, there's no other way to, to put it. Wow. Yeah. They, they've messed up, from what I've been told. I've been told by people who visited there. My good friend, James Mosley, who just died a few months ago, as a matter of fact, uh, he was the one who introduced me to the whole South American scene and the Inca artifacts and whatnot. I have um, a collection of um, pre-Columbian artifacts that I take great pride in, as a matter of fact. Uh, they're about six or eight feet from where I am at this very moment. And um, I, I became a Peruophile, there's no question of it. I, I love the people and, uh, and and what I saw. And uh, I, I and I don't want to go back again. Now that I know that they've turned it into such a commercial thing, I, I, I think I would be very disappointed to see it. Yeah. You're very lucky to see it before it became commercialized. Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, <laughs> Jaime Carabajal was the name of our Ecuadorian friend who did the translating for us and everything. I took him down to, to Machu Picchu. He'd never been there before. And uh, well, but I woke up and we made, made our way up to the, the top. <laughs> I looked around and I said, you know, Jaime, if we got some American engineers here, we could level this place out, all these mountains and such. We could level this out to increase the view. <laughs> and said, of course, but I looked over at Jaime's face, and he was so horrified, his mouth hung, <laughs> and, and, and justly so, you know. And I said, no, no, just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Of course, it was a joke. It was an attempt at a very bad joke. <laughs> but you don't make jokes about things like that. But Machu Picchu was stunning, and it was so well-preserved. It was solid stone, after all, you know. And you can see the work that they put into it. It was built by these very primitive people who didn't have writing. Remember that. The Incas never developed writing. Uh, they, they had a thing they called the quipu, which is uh, a knotted string. And uh, they were colored knotted strings. I actually have a scrap of the quipu in my collection here. And uh, those were used to, uh, to keep a record of numbers of things and people, maybe your family and a few things like that, by means of coding, which has never been translated. So, and that's where we get the word keepusake. That could be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very you, nice. Can you give me a shot with your elbow there, please? <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, oh, wow. You know, I, I, I have a, a deep and abiding respect uh, for the uh, Incan and, pre and pre-Incan. Oh, my goodness, the... Uh, the uh, uh, Chimus, for example, who came before the, well before the Incas. Uh, the wonderful stuff that they built. They built pyramids out of adobe and whatnot. They're just stunning to see. And largely unexplored because you'd pretty well have to dig the whole thing down into the ground to find out if there are tombs and such in there. And I certainly hope that does not happen. Mm -hmm. 
I, I would. Well, I think the Peruvian government, uh, uh, aside from the, the mess they made of Machu Picchu, I think they would have the good common sense not to spoil all that. Yeah, they, they're That's doing some really interesting, uh, I think they're calling it space archaeology, um, which, uh, unlike the Von Donnegan stuff, is actually using real space technology from Earth to yeah. penetrate the jungles and find oh, yeah. uh, all kinds of interesting sites. Oh, and in, uh, huge discoveries in uh, North Africa where well, they can it, see things under the sand. Uh, yeah, so. yeah. Isn't it wonderful? It is. It's amazing. So... Um, and, and, and I think the advantage, of course, is uh, having trained archaeologists go in. You know, they can uh, keep um, uh, respect for the cultures, uh, respect for the living people there, and also uh, following strict scientific methodologies to get a better understanding of what's exactly going on. Um, it, I certainly hope so. It, it, it went crazy in Peru. And I, as I say, I don't want to go back. Uh, because I, I ought to remember as it was. And I want to say another thing, too, um, about the Desert Kingdoms of Peru. That's the name of a book by... Uh-huh. I used to remember these names. <laughs> uh, I, I, I've, I've forgotten the name of the author. He will forgive me, I'm sure. Um, he's a German author um, who wrote wonderful books on uh, on early uh, Andean civilizations. And uh, the desert kingdoms of Peru, my goodness, uh, you literally, in the Atacama Desert, in that absolutely dry sand, in places where rainfall has never hit the earth. Can you believe that? They've never had a rainfall. That's where the Nazca lines are preserved. Do you know anything about them? Ever heard of them? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> the Nazca lines, wonderful sight, a wonderful Maria Reich was a woman that I met there. She was an ancient lady in those days, and I'm, I'm sure she doesn't survive today, unfortunately, but she was a beautiful old lady uh, who used to be sort of a mystic. But uh, she lived, <coughs> pardon me, uh, in uh, the Atacama Desert, and uh, she was a bit of an authority uh, on the area, and she used to, to invite tourists to do a very, very careful tour of the area not leaving uh, marks or anything around. Now, a, a desert where rain has never fallen is all just loose sand, of course. But uh, in that sand, you can kick up pieces of pottery. I mean, just as you walk along in the sand, pieces of pottery are kicked up, and they look like broken flower pots, you know? <laughs> uh, but some of them have, uh, have painting on them, and mm. they're carved in some ways. And... Uh, Wisely, the Peruvian government doesn't want you walking away with these things, but I'm sure that a lot of it gets its way into tourists' uh, handbags and whatnot, mm-hmm. and I, I resent that highly because there there may be something in there that some archaeologists could use to to weave a, a great story from, and uh, perhaps know a little bit more about the ancient Andean uh, civilizations. They were remarkable, and the Inca himself. Uh, Atahualpa was the last Inca's name, and that, that used to be the name of my cat. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I, I, you know, this is not memory, remembering uh, the ancients uh, with due respect, but uh, uh, Atahualpa was a great cat, a great old red cat, um, no longer with us, uh, I need hardly add, but um, Atahualpa, he was strangled. Garroted by the Spanish, of course, because that's the way they 
they treated the uh, the people they captured. Uh, thanks a lot for bringing Spanish culture to South America. <laughs> mm, yeah. No, no, the the Spanish invasion of South America. Oh, it's brutal. brutal. It, it, it's such a such a crime. It is such a, a well, the Inquisition uh, in Europe and such was a grand crime as well. But uh, if you want to go a little step further beyond that, just examine the the dreadful crime that uh, civilization did in Peru. They have every reason to be very, uh, very angry about what was done to their civilization, I must say. Yes, yes. Well, I don't want to end that on uh, such a bleak note, but I think we're about out of time. <laughs> well, yeah, what about uh, episodes of the, the radio shows? Are, are they... Can we find them anywhere well, online? I, actually, I have. Uh, I'm, let me. Yes, I'm looking at them right now. I have a, a small stack of CDs here that uh, people who used to record my radio program. Can you imagine? Way back then, <laughs> they used to record my radio program on on, on tape recording, of course. And then uh, along came um, uh, CDs and such, and they they copied them on CDs. And and some folks are kind enough to send me a few. Uh, CDs of uh, excerpts from the radio program. So uh, every now and then, just for the hell of it, I'll put one of them into the machine here and have lunch while I play an old radio program from the year two. (laughs) (laughs) How fantastic. Yeah, oh yeah, I know, it's fun. And I've never played one of them twice. (laughs) I've got quite a number of them, but I do have some. Now these were all sent to me by people who thought I would be interested to have copies of them, and I'm very grateful for that, of course. I I hope that at some point you're able to share that with people. That that seems like something a lot yeah, of us would like. A lot to of hear. people would like to hear them. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it might very well. It might very well. I'm sure. I, I, I must I must think about. It. I'm going to make a note of that. I just yeah, made a yeah note. I just great. Uh, <laughs> if uh, if you, I would love to include a, a little sample. Um, for this for this show, just to like give people a feel for it, I do have some Long John uh, episodes that I can cut oh, yeah? out to, to some pieces for, but uh, I, unfortunately, none of the ones I have have you. Uh, as well, as I, 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 I will send you a small excerpt. From yeah, me. just oh, you know, a minute or two or whatever would be great. A small editorial injection here. Randy did send me a sample episode from his collection, and here's a brief excerpt discussing the Orson Welles War of the Worlds Halloween special. Randy was talking about that famous Halloween uh, spoof, you know, the War of the Worlds, yes. H.G. Wells, yes. the Orson Welles. That was done on Halloween. It was strictly a joke. Yes. Now, if you were to look in the rating books of that year, you would see that everybody that night, everybody was listening to the uh, Charlie McCarthy show which was on opposite the Mercury Theater. Everybody. Orson Welles had no audience. So if Orson Welles had no audience, how come 50,000 people uh, became hysterical and shrieked, right? Overinflated uh, uh, scare, I think, that ever happened, because I don't believe, really. And I, You know, you talk to people nowadays who heard the thing, who claim they heard it, and they say, oh, yeah, I was scared, and my mother was scared. I, heard, I think I heard parts of it. I didn't pay much attention to it. I don't think it was on opposite Charlie McCarthy. Yes, it was. Yes. Eight to nine on Sunday night. I thought it was earlier in the day. Well, eight well, to nine. Yeah. There's a very interesting study that was made of this by uh, Princeton, Princeton University yes. Press. There's a book called Invasion yeah. uh, from uh, Mars, I believe. Can't Can't I believe. And uh, they went into it in some depth interviewing people who hadn't heard the show. What happened actually was uh, Bergen and McCarthy, of course, did have a very large, I guess the big rating of the evening was Bergen and McCarthy. But at about eight minutes after the hour, uh, some girl, I think, Dorothy Lamour, apologies if, <laughs> if it's true or if it's false, but anyway, she started to sing. And a lot of people started to... Uh, 
twist the dial, and they hit upon the show just at the point, because of course the show did have an opening. It opened, they gave the name of the show, we're going to present War of the Worlds and so forth, and then they go into the dramatization. They missed missed all of the opening stuff, and about eight minutes after the hour, I believe it was about the time they were arriving at um, the spot there, Grover's Mill. And by that time, they were hooked. Arthur, you I'm lucky I missed the scare. I was in England at the time, and I heard about it. Arthur, your remarks are about talent. Uh, yes. I, I think seem to tie in, too, with my, uh, seems to be my basic thesis underlining the, my reasoning for working on the uh, juvenile serials. And that is that, again, comes back to uh, the fact not that we just have change of progress, but this era that we're living in now is, is, is vastly different than... In the past, when we just went from one generation of one era to another, because with this advent of the atomic bomb, it's, it's just a fantastic change. And this uh, comparison of television programs and talent to uh, the old radio shows, I think, bears that out very clearly and very oh, forcibly. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Well, how come the people got so scared back in the U.S. and Wales days? They didn't have the atom bomb to worry about, and they were running out. They must have been scared of something up there. Well, there's always something to be scared of. It depends what age you live on. You know, it was girls when I was younger, but uh, I've gotten over that. Well, this was the day of the radio on-the-spot newscast, and people at this time, this was the days of the phony war and so forth, prior to the actual uh, outbreak of World War II. Yeah, and people right. were used Definitely to hearing shows broken into by men saying we interrupt this yes. program. The audio from this episode of Randy's show is now preserved at the CSI Library for archival purposes, and it's my sincere hope that other episodes will be added to that collection in the future. For our, our regular episodes, we try to ask all of our guests the same last question, and it's been led to some very interesting answers. Well, no, we don't ever refer to the last question. You see, at my age, we're, I'm sent to <laughs> <laughs> Another well, question. A, 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 an additional question, then. Okay. Since the show is Monster Talk, the science show about monsters, what is your favorite monster? You. Oh, well, that's my wife's favorite one. Oh, too. <laughs> never heard that one before. Yeah. No, I, well, I have a monster named Barry Geller, but. Uh, uh, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. He's sort of monstrous in some ways. Mm-hmm. But, uh, no, I, I don't know how to answer that. Let me see. Never thought. I like those answers already. Oh, uh, you like them already. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Please, I can see. <laughs> well, hmm. No, I, I can't think of a, a favorite monster. Uh, uh, let me see. Who would it be? I know that the minute that I disconnect, I'll say, oh, yeah, uh, and I'll remember it. But who would be my favorite monster? Or what would be my favorite monster? There's um, a lot. There's a lot of them in the um, um, in South America. There hmm. is um, an alleged uh, monster. Some people think it's actually a giant ground sloth that has still survived. The chupacabra? Oh, uh, the mapinguari. Mapinguari is a very strange creature. There's a lady on this program. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> yes. A crass. Really, Excuse crass. me. Pardon me. <laughs> well, no, the chupacabra, I think, might be one of my, my favorite monsters. You know the chupacabra, of course. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> Pardon me. See, no I, 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 I always cough when I when I think of the chupacabra. It I'm does sure. sound a little bit like a cough. <laughs> yeah. Chupacabra, bless you. So. <laughs> Actually, in my house, we don't say bless you anymore. We yell science, which is... <laughs> nice. Well, well, I say chupacabra. <laughs> science. Uh, well, that's neat, yeah. Uh, 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 chupacabra. Doesn't it? It does. It sounds like a sneeze. It really does. In another language, yeah. <laughs> Fear sneeze, one or the other. So, 
Well, I really appreciate it, and I'm sure Karen does too. Yes, thank you very much. We really appreciate your time. And thanks for sharing these stories because, again, I don't, I don't know that I've read them or heard them before. No, anywhere, I haven't so either. And I yeah, think... people love them. Yes, exactly. All right. All right. Have a good okay. night. Thank you, Randy. Thank you, Karen. Bye-bye. 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 Monster Dog. You've been listening to Karen Stolzno and me, Blake Smith, interviewing James Randi about his involvement with the WOR Long John Nebel Show. I hope you'll go to the show notes at monstertalk.org and check out some of the samples of these historic shows that are available online. During my research for this episode, I discovered that there's a very large collection of Long John recordings at the Syracuse University Library. I reached out to them to inquire about whether or not they would be making that collection available digitally, and they said that a project's currently underway to do just that. It may be years before that project's complete, and I do not know what the copyright restrictions may do to affect whether or not these episodes will be accessible from the internet, but I'm pleased that the effort's being made to convert the reel-to-reel tapes to a more modern and widely accessible format. I was more than a little amused that when I finally got to listen to the example audio from James Randi's WOR episode, The topic was about the preservation of old radio shows. The episode talked extensively with wistful nostalgia about the old radio serials of the 1930s and 40s, so it came to pass that in my 21st century effort to take a look at radio from the 60s, the example Randy provided was one about a nostalgic look at even older radio shows. There's some sort of amusing recursion going on there. Here's a clip. Uh, David Golden, radio engineer with NBC, collector of old radio programs. Thank you so much for coming here this morning, and we hope to do the subject again very soon. Let's hope that some folks out there have something that you would like to add to your collection, and um, if anything comes our way, we'll be glad to acquaint you with the fact. How about 30 seconds of summing up from David Golden? Well, radio is, uh, has had a wonderful past, a creative past, and in some instances a pretty bad past. Uh, it, it's come down a great deal from where it once was. It's no longer the number one entertainment medium. I don't think I can foresee it ever becoming that again. However, I do believe that radio has a definite future. It's here to stay. And it's up to the radio generation today, the people working in it today, to make it as good in a different way as the past masters made it 10 and 20 years ago. At first, I was struck by the parallels of hearing Randy call for people who may have made recordings of these older shows to contact his guest. It's an interesting coincidence, but maybe not as weird as it first seemed. I plan to talk about coincidence in an upcoming episode and hope to take a look at just how odd this kind of thing really is. One other thing I found interesting was that on Randy's show, like today's radio, guest interaction was a big part of the show. Before the internet, listen how WOR took contest submissions. Well, we interrupt this program right to this moment, as a matter of fact, to bring you number two in our contest. This theme is from the famous radio program of the, fa- uh, the fast, sure, of the past. I'll be all right for malaria. <laughs> of the past. And uh, we are going to play that one for you now. Have you got all revved up, Mr. McDonough? Walter McDonough, with his sure fingers there, is uh, now going to play number two. This is number two. And we want you to write this one down, folks, with your sharp little pencils and your little gum wrappers. And get ready to send it in to us via Western Union compete for the fabulous prize. Ready with number two. Yes. Instead of tweets or Facebook entries, people submitted Western Union contest submissions and questions and feedback during the live show. Because the show was being broadcast live from when Long John hosted, they had to come up with a way to prevent obscenity from being broadcast, so an early version of tape delay was invented that allowed the host to dump slip-ups when a guest or caller might say something that station authorities would normally disallow. 
The whole business with Long John's wife, Candy, being allegedly involved with CIA spying and MKUltra is an interesting chapter of its own. There's a lot of reason to be skeptical about it, but the CIA did do a lot of very strange and unethical things during the Cold War. I've included some links to material related to that as well if you'd like to know more. Again, that's at monstertalk.org. Show notes. I hope you've enjoyed this nostalgic look back at the origins of paranormal-themed radio. I hope in time that digital access to these extensive recordings at Syracuse University Library will be made available to the public. I think that a lot of these first-generation interviews with UFO enthusiasts are historically significant in giving context to what has morphed into an almost religious mythos over the decades since the term flying saucer was first coined. Hearing them now, some come across as almost quaint in their naivete about astronomy and physics, but some are just as thought-provoking and mysterious and unsolved as they were back then. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions you hear on this show are those of my guests or my own, but do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Links for our Twitter and Facebook are on our monstertalk.org website. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not give us a review at iTunes or Google Play? Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing. Did you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com slash magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. Fans of science fiction would appreciate some of Long John's other guests, like Frederick Pohl, Ray Palmer, Fritz Lieber, Lester Del Rey, and uh, Ray Palmer again, apparently. I need to edit that. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.